Let's turn now to the Word. We're in 1 Samuel 17, uh, verses uh, 17 through 30, and uh, it's printed for you there in the bulletin, or you could turn there in the Word, or in, in, in your Bibles. Hear the Word of the Lord. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battle. Battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David, and David said, does it seem to you? A little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and, and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. And Saul, then Saul said to David, thus you shall say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought back their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word and that you reveal yourself to us in it. You show us what you are like, how you act in the world, and the purposes for which you act. And I pray now that we would see these things with clarity and that it would all be a comfort to us and strengthen us. I pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, I want you to think for a moment about Wiley Coyote. <laughs> Someone's a big fan. I love it. Wiley Coyote, Looney Tunes character. And, you know, that cartoon, like several other Looney Tune cartoons, is basically one plot line on loop. And I'm sure you know it well. Well, there's the antagonist, and he's trying to, he's trying to trap the protagonist. But every time he does, not only do his plans fail, but they actually fall back on himself so that he falls into his own trap. So you can think of Wile E. Coyote, he's, you know, at the side of the road, and he's got this big 
bucket and a stick of dynamite. And he's going to trap Roadrunner under the bucket and put the stick in there and blow him up. But even before Roadrunner comes through, you know where this is going. Somehow, at the end of this, Wiley e. Coyote is going to end up under the bucket with his own dynamite stick. Or there he is with a sledgehammer, and you know somehow that sledgehammer is going to hit him instead. He goes to swing, and the head falls off, and the stick hits the ground, and it comes back, and it hits him in the face, and he, you know, runs away. And another plan foiled, whether it's a, a rocket or a hole he dug in the ground or an anvil or a piano hanging from a cliff, from a cliff every time you know this is not going to end well for Wiley e. Coyote. This is going to come back on him. How is it that you know that that's going to happen every time? Well, it's because it's clear through the consistency of the way the cartoon goes that there is an invisible hand behind the story writing each vignette so that it goes that way, so that Roadrunner's innocence is defended and the coyote's evil schemes fall back on himself. And that's how you can understand the basic dynamic of this story. Saul is the wily coyote of ancient Israel. He is scheming to get David killed. And not only does David, in his innocence, evade Saul's scheme, but Saul actually ends up in a worse place than when he started. And all the while, the purposes of God to elevate King David above Saul as the true king prevail. There is an invisible hand in this narrative, and that hand is God's hand fulfilling his purposes. And so from this passage, I, I want to teach about the purposes of God. The purposes of God, specifically that no scheme of man or of Satan can thwart God's purposes. No scheme of man or Satan can thwart God's purposes. When God sets out to do something, he does it, no matter what. And this is very relevant for our own lives. We need an active and accurate understanding of God's purposes in the world and how he fulfills them. We need to know that the terrible things that happen, even the terrible things we do, have some kind of purpose that these are not just throwaway atrocities in the history of the world, that somehow the purposes of God are on track even when it seems like everything is off the rails. When, when Christ's name is crucified or the church is persecuted or a loved one dies or we continue to struggle with whatever sin or we are in a deep depression or our marriage is in trouble or work is a drag, or just whatever it is that's not going well, when, all of, when the foreground of our lives are a disappointment, how can we know that God is in the background working all these things for good and for His glory? Stories like this can help us. And so today as we work through the passage, I want to make three points about the purposes of God. One, God's purposes make use of evil. God's purposes make use of evil. These aren't throwaway atrocities. Second, God's purposes promote what is good. His purposes promote what is good. They're driving at something. And then third, God's purposes serve to magnify His name. His purposes serve to magnify His name. So let's jump into our first point. God's purposes make use of evil. 
This story is, in essence, God using Saul's schemes against him. And the first half of this passage really highlights those schemes. And what we see are back-to-back parallel attempts by Saul to get David killed. Saul thinks, if I present a daughter for marriage and then make David have to fight the Philistines in order to win my daughter, then he will die in battle, and I will have eliminated this problem for myself, this David problem. And so Saul dangles his daughter Merab before David. But David, in his humility, evades this trap. He actually considers himself unworthy to be son-in-law to the king. So his character and Saul's character are, are, in, are, are different. They're contrasted. So that first attempt doesn't work, but aha, a better opportunity arises. Saul's daughter, Michal, loves David. So Saul starts scheming, scheming again and in the same way, but at this time, he doesn't take no for an answer. Even though David is pushing back, he sort of markets the situation, in a sense, to appeal to David's motives. He said, David, here's an opportunity to avenge the king's enemies, to be victorious in battle again. Don't you love killing Philistines, David? Here, come kill 100 and have my daughter in marriage. And so David, motivated, gets to work. And Saul thinks, ah, my schemes are working. And so here in this first half of the story, we have a picture, a clear picture of Saul acting in wickedness. And we need to just recognize that what Saul is doing is blatantly evil. Even though something good is going to come from this, Saul is acting in a destructive way. His envy, which we learned about last week, has given birth to murderous intent, and he is trying to get David killed. And he's using his daughters as pawns for this. He's acting in a vile manner, and he's going directly against God's will. That he does not know that he is playing into David's hand and on a divine level, is playing into God's hand. You can think of this somewhat like the martial art judo. Uh, Judo, translates to the gentle way, emphasizes using your opponent's weight and strengths and forms of attack as weapons against them. So you're, you know, you're maneuvering, you're manipulating your enemy's own acts against them. Well, here's Saul on the offense, and what we will see next is God turning these attacks around on Saul for David's sake. And this is not the first time in the Bible that we have seen God employ this tactic of working out evil for good. Probably the most famous example of this comes fairly early in the story of the Bible, in the story of Joseph, who is a prototype of Christ. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, and he eventually lands in prison and not through any fault of his own. He keeps getting wronged, even though he is in the right. And he lands in prison, and he's essentially on death row. But through a series of events, God orchestrates things so that he actually is promoted to be second in command of Egypt, the most powerful nation at the time. And in that position, uh, he de- Joseph develops a way to save the land from seven years of famine. And he becomes a sort of hero and savior, not only of all the land, but of his own family and brothers specifically. And at at the end of the story, when Joseph has forgiven his brothers and been restored to them, he has this sentence that is 
profound. He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good. And here we see the same thing. Saul means evil against David. He means for David to be killed. God means it for good. He is actually going to use this to elevate the name of David and establish a good, true king over Israel. And so when we think about the purposes of God, if we are going to have a healthy and accurate and hopeful relationship even with the purposes of God, we need to resolve and embrace in our hearts that God makes use of evil to accomplish His purposes. The terrible things that happen, that we do, that are done to us, that seemingly happen at random, are somehow used of God for good. And the Bible is clear on this. And that can either trouble you, that God, a good God, would allow evil, or it can comfort you if you will trust that God's ways are higher than your ways. That evil is not the last word, but that there is a good God sovereignly ordering all things and twisting evil back on itself to accomplish His purposes. Isn't that a more hopeful perspective on evil? Even the own disappointments of your life, you think of something that you did to wrong another person, to know that somehow in ways that you can't understand, God is going to use that for good, even if that goodness is your own humility and dependence that you go to God for grace. God makes use of evil, but he uses it for good. And that brings us to our next point. So point number two, God's purposes promote what is good. His purposes promote what, his, what is good. At verse 26, the story flips and we see how Saul's schemes fall back on himself. So here David comes into focus, and upon hearing that the bride price of a hundred Philistine foreskins, uh, upon hearing that that's the bride price for McCall, uh, 100 Philistine foreskins, springs to action. Okay, this is a price that David is more than willing, eager even, to pay. Before the time expires, he rises and with his men, he kills not 100, but 200 Philistines, sort of double or nothing. Do you hear echoes of that song that Saul hates, that Nate talked about last week? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Here it is again, David being the king Saul can never be. This is not going well for Saul. And so David comes with 200 foreskins and presents them to Saul in full number. I have no interest in knowing what that was like. And at that moment, he gains Michal as his wife. Who, by the way, in the next chapter, Michal actually will save David's life from another attempted attack by Saul. So already, God is planting in this situation good benefits for David, that his wife will save him from, uh, from a trap. And so David gets McCall an, as a wife, and further, this all further cements that God is using Saul's schemes against him. Saul's elaborate scheme falls flat on its face, and instead, 
of a dead David being presented to him. Here, standing before him, is a successful, victorious David. He's not only still alive, but now part of the royal family. (laughs) Saul is in a worse place than he was when he started. And at this, Saul comes to know what we, the reader, have known for a while, that God is with David. Look at verse 28. When Saul knew, or saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. The result of Saul's schemes is a David further cemented and established and protected. The Lord's good and righteous king is now closer to the throne than he was before. God's purposes have promoted what is good. So when, when we read this story in isolation, we maybe get the false impression that goodness always wins out instantly, almost like an arm wrestling match where it's like there's no match whatsoever. and Goodness just pins evil to the ground every time. But we zoom out in this story and we find that in David's life, just like in our lives, we, have, we need no convincing of this, the struggle between good and evil is much more pronounced. Yes, God is on the throne promoting goodness, reigning over all things, but this does not preclude suffering and hardship and evil and the effects of evil. Oftentimes, it looks as if the cause of the wicked is winning and the cause of the righteous is losing. And the Bible clearly bears this out. For example, Virtually every godly person in the Bible suffers and has to wait on God while they endure. And often they are an innocent victim of a situation. The book of Psalms has an entire category dedicated to the, to the predicament of the righteous in a, in a wicked world, and they're called lament psalms. And the refrain of, the, of lament psalms is, How long, O Lord? How long? Will things be upside down? You can be on the side of God's purposes and your life look nothing like favorable. Or if you read Ecclesiastes, you will see that life is a mixed bag for the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And in fact, David's own life illustrates this. You know, right now, David is, he's, he's at the peak, basically, of his life. If his song, if his life were a song, it would be Don't Stop Me Now by Queen. You know, uh, I'm a shooting star leaping through the sky like a tiger, defying the laws of gravity. That's, that's David right now. He's on fire. But basically, the rest of this book shows David on the run. Absolutely miserable, even though he maintains his integrity. And from those experiences of being on the run and hiding in caves and being in the desert and being thirsty and hungry... He writes many of our lament psalms. And so how can we say that God's purposes promote good when it seems like they involve so much bad? One reason that we know that we can say this is that the Bible says this explicitly. Romans 8 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. God orders all things for the good of those who love him. And we need to hold that with absolute confidence. That is a bedrock truth 
And we need to hold it just like we hold the truth that God makes use of evil. And this is a tension for us. And we'll never resolve the tension fully. But one thing that I think can help is to hold another truth, which is that we are not privy to the ordering or the timing of these things. That we don't often, in fact, we rarely, if ever, get to see how the bad things turn out for good. And that path between the bad thing and it's being used for good can be very, very, very long and winding and difficult. At risk of a sort of playful analogy for something that we all feel uh, pretty deeply, you might think of, of all of this somewhat like a Plinko board. You know those boards you see at carnivals that have the pegs in them and you drop the little wooden chip in and it kind of kerplunks its way down and it goes all these different directions and it finally lands at the bottom? Somehow, the events of your life, my life, of all events everywhere are part of a grand journey toward goodness. Not that each thing that happens is itself good, that would be preposterous, but rather somehow all of these things land in a way that goodness prevails. And that's because God's purposes are to promote good. He is working all things together for good. And while that might be a a cute analogy, we all know that there's nothing cute about our hopes and dreams traveling further and further and further from where we hoped they would land. So one way that we need to prepare ourselves to endure the winding road of disappointment and of evil is to familiarize ourselves with the promises and the purposes and the character of God. And if you're looking for something actionable from this sermon, this would be it. Familiarize yourself with the promises and the purposes and the character of God. Fix in your heart what God is like, what God has promised, and what God is up to. Those things will not take away your pain, but they will give you a hopeful perspective to endure the madness of life under the sun. What are some of these things? Well, God promises not to lose any that he has called to himself, but to preserve each one. God promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. God promises to defend the cause of the oppressed and the righteous. God promises to bring every wicked deed to account and to punish all evil. And he promises to make all things new. And you can take those promises and apply them to your life when things seem to be going the opposite direction of those promises. Somehow they will come through. God's character also comes through. God is good, the scriptures say, and in him is no and then God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. He orders all things according to the counsel of his perfect will. He is just in all his ways. And he's not some distant God reigning from far above with no interaction with us. No, God is near and far. God is near enough to remember our sorrows as if he kept each tear in a bottle, the scriptures say. 
and God's purposes, which are evergreen, are our sanctification, that we would grow in holiness. His purposes are for His glory. His name will always be lifted up in the end, that we act in integrity, in holiness, that we pursue the fruit of the Spirit, that the church would be built up and grow, that, that people from every tribe and nation and tongue will come into His courts with singing, these are the purposes of God. So friends, these are the, the how and the why and for what reasons of God's way in the world. God is ordering all things according to this set of truths about His character and His promises and His purposes. And so, I challenge you, a friendly challenge, to look upon the most painful parts of your lives and say, even this, even this, God is using for good. Though I may not know how, and I might never know how, even my besetting sin, even my spouse's unbelief, even my failing marriage, even my prodigal child, even my unemployment, even my singleness, even my infertility, even a great wrong done against me, even a great wrong I did against someone else, even the decline of the church in the West and the seeming acceleration of immorality, even the oppression of the poor, even the carnage of violence. Somehow, in all of these things, God is working them together for good. And I have an opportunity to endure them and to navigate them with hope. To believe that there is buried beneath this hardship a seed that gives birth to something good and something beautiful. And this is not easy, but we must resolve with hope that God is working through these things for good. And so, so far about God's purposes, we have learned that his purposes make use of evil. They're not throwaway atrocities. Second, God's purposes promote what is good. And we come now to our third point, which is that the end of all God's purposes, God's purposes serve to magnify his name. God's purposes serve to magnify his name. Verse 30 sums up, really, the point of this whole passage. Look down there with me. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. The results of all of this, all of this scheming, all God's intervention, is that David's name is highly esteemed esteemed. And why did Saul begin these schemes against David in the first place? Because he wanted David's name crossed out. He hated that song. Saul has killed his thousands, but David is his ten thousands. Saul's whole point was to tear down the name of David because it was competing with his name. But the result of this is that David's name was even more elevated than it was before. 
Reminds me of a lyric I know. The trap I set for you seems to have caught my foot instead. Saul's trap has caught his own foot. God uses the schemes of of Saul to elevate the name of his chosen king over Saul. And I can't help but read this story and see parallels to the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus begins his ministry, and the first thing Satan does is try to tempt him, try to derail his ministry, to lure him out of trusting in God. But Jesus is steadfast in his innocence and in his integrity. He remains committed to the word of God and to the mission God has given him. And so that doesn't work. And as, Satan's, or as Jesus' ministry continues, you see the religious leaders scheming how to trap him in his words. They bring forward riddles, difficult questions. They try to trap him. But with every attempt and every answer from Jesus, what happens? Jesus' fame grows. Jesus, the people see this is not a teacher like we've seen before. This is one who teach with, teaches with authority. And so again, the traps fall back on themselves. And all of the scheming comes to a head in the crucifixion. Through a coordinated effort between Satan and Judas and the Pharisees and Sadducees and even Pilate, Jesus, it seems, is finally trapped. The one thing Jesus will not deny is that he is the Son of God, and this is what they pin him for. So they put him on a cross with a mocking sign that reads, the King of the Jews, and they kill him. It seems as if the villain has finally trapped the hero. But this time, disappointment, discouragement has won out. The words of the disciples before they learn of Jesus' resurrection best convey this sense of God's purposes seeming to have been dashed in Jesus' death. They said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But little did they all know that this is how Jesus was to redeem Israel. Jesus had to die to fulfill God's purposes. Death was the final battle to be fought, the final trap to be escaped. God's purpose is that all things be made new in Jesus through the power of his resurrection. And so on the third day, Jesus rises from the dead so that death is swallowed up in victory. The trap I set for you seems to have caught my foot instead. Nothing could hold our Lord down. And so friends, this is our hope that even the death of God falls into the purposes of God. It's so shocking, it's hard to even say that even the death of God falls into the purposes of God. That as Acts tells us, it was according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God that his son would be delivered up to be crucified. And what was the end of that? Why? Our salvation, certainly, but more than that, the glory of God. Here's how Philippians put it. After reflecting on Jesus' obedience to the point of death, it says, 
at the, at the, the, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father at the name of Jesus. David's name was elevated above Saul's. What happened in the crucifixion of our Lord? His name is elevated above every other name. Downstream of the greatest trap in human history is the glory of God. God acts to elevate the name of Christ for his glory and the good of the church, that the nations might rush to this name and be saved. And if evil can befall the Son of God for good, then, my friends, it can happen to you and it can happen to me without crushing us. Bad things can happen. We can do bad things without them crushing us. Instead, we can have hope. And the good news of God's purposes is that they are beyond you, but include you. That is, His purposes are not fixed on the circumstances of your life. His purposes are not for certain things to go a certain way for you. Rather, His purposes are big enough to catch up every circumstance of our lives, the weighty and the trivial, the shameful, the joyful, all of it, and carry those things somewhere good, like a river rushing to the throne of God in new creation. And so today on this first day of Advent, my word of encouragement to you is this, befriend the purposes of God. Befriend his purposes. Believe that he is working things according to his will and will accomplish his purposes. Do you find yourself like Saul, scheming against God's will? Are you rebelling against God, refusing to give something up? My friend, do not find yourself on the losing side of God's purposes. Repent. Embrace King Jesus. Pursue what is good. Perhaps you are disappointed. You are entering Advent in pain. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Perhaps you have a hope deferred. I had hoped to be married by now. I had hoped to have children. I had hoped to have freedom from the sin. I had hoped for a healthier marriage. I had hoped for a bigger paycheck. I had hoped for employment. I had hoped so-and-so would have done the right thing. I had hoped I hadn't made a mess of my life. I had hoped for not this. Befriend the purposes of God. Play the long game. Learn to interpret the disappointments and the frustrations and the outright atrocities of your life through the lens of the perfect purposes of God. And trust that in the background, He is making beauty of what in the foreground is a mess and a disappointment. 
My friends, will you believe that, in, that the invisible hand of resurrection power is at work in your life, in the world, twisting every sin and scheme of Satan back on itself for the good of the church and for God's glory? Can you believe that? Someday you will see it. And Satan will be shut up forever. And the purposes of God will be finally fulfilled. And we will be glad. Until that day, our souls in silence wait. Our hope is in him. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Your majesty and your power are comforts to us that nothing in this life can tear down your name, can thwart your purposes. You will fulfill your purposes and your purposes are good. And so we have hope. Train us for hope and endurance as we navigate the circumstances of our lives, believing that your purposes are being fulfilled even when we cannot see it. Help us. We thank you for your son who has saved us.